we're going through um, and an encouragement to us um, that even a church that the Apostle Paul, um, we might say outside of Jesus, um, one of the biggest heroes of, um, of the New Testament, even a church that Paul planted um, could have significant problems and did have significant problems. And so if you were going to look at um, which church in the New Testament was the biggest mess, um, other than a few snippets in the first letters of Revelation, it's definitely Corinth. Um, Corinth had a lot of really bad stuff going on there. Um, Paul hears about it um, two different ways. Um, there's some people from Chloe's house. Chloe was a Christian um, there in Corinth, and some representatives from Chloe's house apparently visited Paul and said, Paul, a bunch of things are a mess in Corinth. Um, well, it also seems that a letter was written um, to Paul as well. And so Paul has heard verbally from a representative from Chloe's house, and he's also gotten correspondence that much, much was wrong um, in the Corinthian church. And so we saw in the first few chapters um, that Paul was pointing the Corinthian church back to remember that their salvation was in Christ. In his first few chapters, he labors to show uh, that it is Jesus and Jesus alone who is head of the church and that any other minister or any other, we might say, celebrity Christian around which the church might bring division is really nothing in comparison to Jesus. And then he starts going through very specific things as he talks about the different things that were going on. And so he's saying, you know, I heard this was going on. I heard this was going on. And so we're, we're finishing up this morning and next week um, the report from Chloe's house and what was going on there. Now, this is a particular passage as we come to this um, that Christians have gotten very wrong. And so I'm going to give a little bit of a longer description this morning before we dive into this text. Um, it's something that encourages Christians to not pursue frivolous lawsuits um, in the civil sphere, but instead to depend on local churches um, to handle problems between one another. Um, sometimes um, people have um, concluded that any crime that any Christian commits should be handled only within the church. First of all, the Bible doesn't teach that. And so you see in Romans 13 and Peter saying that God has instituted civil authority, that anyone who bears the office of any civil authority um, in any branch of our government is put there specifically by God, and that God is sovereignly acting through those who have been placed in authority, and that is the job, according to Romans 13, for those who've been placed in authority to exercise right judgment and rewarding the just and punishing the unjust. And so God very much says that Christians are subservient to the authority in the civil, civil sphere. What we see here in this passage, not all crimes, he's talking about minor civil things and not what we would say federal or criminal court. Um, and you see that um, in this verse that he says things of this life, and we'll look at how that goes. Whenever a Christian commits a crime, they should be prosecuted by the law. They should be. And so, you know, part of what we do, especially if someone has committed a, a federal crime and they come to us, you know, we will say, no, we, we have legal means. It's not we're not going to tell the courts. We are going to tell the courts. And you run into that in church, especially in issues of um, child abuse and things like that. If there is child abuse or accusations of child abuse, we go and talk to the police um, because that's what God's put there. Um, if we have domestic violence and someone's hitting or hurting someone, we go to the police and we talk to the police because those are the authorities. There isn't, oh, no, we're not going to go to the authorities and talk about that. God has given authorities 
for that reason. So that is not what Paul is talking about here um, in this passage. Um, Thirdly, um, Roman civil litigation, what Paul's describing here, Roman civil litigation, was very different than what we have in terms of civil litigation here. There weren't any forensic sciences, you know, obviously. Like, it wasn't like, you know, CTU comes in and, like, is dusting the doorknob of their, you know, very dusty houses all together and doing, you know, fingerprints and, and looking at, you know, knife trajectories and all of these different things. N- none of that existed. And so in Roman civil litigation, what happened was it ended up going down to one of two things, character assassination and bribery. And we have plenty of that in, in the um, archaeological evidence that describes how civil litigation went. And so um, if you had a lot of money, you could bribe the judge. And especially in a case of civil litigation, you know, he did something that I don't like and, and, and I'm going to court. You just go into court and he, one person would say, he's a really bad guy, you shouldn't believe him. And the other person would say, no, he's a really bad guy and you shouldn't believe him. You know, kind of very worst of like Judge Judy or whatever court shows. Um, that you've seen. And so that was what was going on. And so the Christians were going to courts um, that there was bribery going on and basically saying, no, you're bad. No, you're bad. No, you're bad. And then letting, letting secular authorities judge in the church. And so Paul's like, this is, this is not good um, at all. And of course, Roman government was not patterned on Judeo-Christian biblical ethics like our courts were. Um, and so lastly, in the context of what was going on in Corinth, we just saw, I guess not last week, but a few months ago, um, that Paul was talking to them about a very, very, very um, nasty public sin that was going on um, in the church, that a man was having an affair with his stepmother, um, and the Corinthian church wasn't addressing it all. Uh, it's even thought that they might have been boasting in it. Um, so really big matter of sin and you know, sexual sin and gross stuff, and they're, just, they're not handling it. And then Christians are having little fusses and fights with one another, and they're taking that all the way to the civil Roman government. And Paul's saying, what? This, no, no, no. Like, no, that, and handle this. And so you have to realize as he's talking about these court cases in the next frame, he's ta- he just was talking about a major issue that they should have been dealing with, smaller issues that they are dealing with, but they're not dealing with the right way. They're going to the civil courts. And so the context of this passage is going to teach us some very significant things about how we relate to one another, but you have to see the context of what was going on so that we don't take this out of, um, out of perspective in, in what we do. And so with that longer introduction, um, I'll now read to us the word of God from the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 6. This is what Paul says. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a wrong. Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Because this is the word of God. Um, Let's pray now. Father, thank you for this, your word. 
that not only instructs us, instructs us in the um, larger matters of sin and salvation, um, but also very pertinent matters of the church and how we live our lives with one another before your face. And so would you, through your word, show us the grace of Jesus um, as we lean on him for all of our church life. And we pray in Christ. Amen. So this passage in these first um, few eight verses, um, we see it break down into three specific points where Paul is showing Christians why for minor offenses with one another, they should handle it amongst one another, one another rather than going to unjust, unrighteous um, secular courts. And the first one is a pretty significant and encouraging fact, which he says very specifically that Christians will join Jesus in the final judgment. He says, don't don't you know what's going to happen when Jesus comes back? There's going to be a judgment where Christ will judge both men and women and also the angels. And in that final judgment, Christians will join him in that judgment. And so we don't know exactly how it's going to look, but Jesus is going to be there on the throne judging. And that we are going to be along with Jesus, giving the just judgment on those who have not placed their faith in the Lord God and on fallen angels. Um, We see it mentioned in Daniel 7. We see Jesus mentioning it in Matthew 19. We see it come up again in the latter parts of Revelation, this theme that we're going to join Jesus in that judgment. Now, that's a one day for certain, not yet. The trajectory is that one day after our deaths or the return of Jesus, we are going to be so transformed into the image of Jesus, the process of sanctification will be complete. We will be so indwelt by the Holy Spirit, no more sin. We will know everything that we should know as Christians about God's word and the will of Christ. We will be so in line with Jesus that all of us will join Christ in the judgment of the world because sanctification is done and glory were exactly what we need to be. But that's not how we are yet. We're still learning about God's word. We're still growing in um, grace and in holiness and in sanctification. The Holy Spirit is still doing that great renovating work, but it is an ongoing renovating work in the heart of every Christian that is teaching you what the Bible says, how grace functions in our lives, and how the church lives their life differently than does the outside world based on grace. And so the community here of faith has a possession and a power that the world does not have. You have something here that the justices on the Supreme Court of the United States do not have. And that is the Holy Spirit teaching to you the very words of Christ from the very words of Christ, the written word of God. And so as we as a congregation grow in our knowledge of what God is doing here in our midst, we are more equipped to help people settle disputes with one another. And that's the way the Bible talks about it in passages like Matthew 18. And so if two people are having a conflict with one another, they should go to one another and say, okay, brother, sister in Christ, we're having a conflict. Both of us have the Holy Spirit. Both of us are instructed by God's word. Both of us love Jesus and want the honor of Christ to prevail in the situation. Let's try and work on this. But 
still in this life, there's still remaining sin, and it may not be easy to come to. And so at that point, uh, Matthew says in Matthew 18, at that point, you bring in a few other brothers and sisters in Christ. And now we have a few other people in the room who are under the influence, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, who are growing in the wisdom of the Word of God, who want the honor of Jesus above all else, and together come together and say, okay, this is the situation. Um, two Christians are at odds with one another. Let's reason through this together and figure out what should be going on. It, it might be that that small group of people can't figure it out. And so then, according to Matthew 18, it goes to the elders of the church, which should be the, the wisest, most seasoned Christians in the congregation. And the elders then meet together. And again, now we have a little bit of a larger group. Everyone indwelt by the Holy Spirit, knowledgeable in the Word of God, coming together for the glory of Jesus to adjudicate, to help two you know, brothers or sisters, brother and sister, come to some agreement on what happened in their conflict and how it might chart a way forward for reconciliation and forgiveness. And so what we're seeing is if one day we're going to be those judges, perfect in the Holy Spirit, knowing everything, our wills all the way conform to Jesus, that process is currently ongoing right now in the midst of us. Right now. And so... Who knows? How long am I into the sermon? 13 minutes into the sermon. From the time that I began, you are 13 minutes more sanctified by the Holy Spirit, more growing in holiness and wisdom in the judgment of God. Every second of every day, God is bringing about the perfect plan in you as a Christian and in us as a congregation to make us more holy and more wise and more equipped to handle the problems that we might find in our personal lives which is the beauty of the Christian church. And so Paul's first point is simply that. God is making you into the people that are going to be a part of the cataclysmic, eschatological, end of the world judgment of all things. is isn't just Jesus is going to judge and Jesus is going to make that judgment. You know, Jesus, you're God. You got this. God's going to say, no, no, no. My work and blueprint in your life is complete. You are now made perfectly holy in the full enjoyment of me. All Christians, join the Lord Jesus. I want you to have this honor of joining with him in the final judgment of the world. And so if that is the end goal and that process is going on, then if we have minor fusses and fights with one another, why is a local church not good enough to handle Minor fusses and fights and work through these things. According to Matthew 18, go to one another, bring a, form, bring a few other people involved, keep confidentiality, love one another, and then bring elders in if you finally get to that. Why are we going to unjust courts where bribery and character assassinations, what, why are we choosing to do that? And so that's Paul's first point. His second point, as we said, is that there are non-Christians who are not under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and at least back in that day, we're under a very unjust and unrighteous um, judicial administration. And so not only does he say that the courts are corrupt, but the courts cannot display grace and truth. Courts should display truth. God has given every, as we talked about in the beginning, Romans 13, 1 Peter, Every emperor, every authority is under the command of God, whether they're Christian or not, to pursue truth and justice in the world. What we find in a local church, in a Christian community, 
is that we are also ruled by God's grace. And so we speak both grace and truth. And so what people should see when they look at Christians deal with one another, they should see two things. First of all, that they're way more truthful to one another than the world is. That we hold each other accountable more than the world does. That we're kind of in each other's business more than the world is. I know, I know one Christian um, who was going through difficulty um, in her marriage, and um, she was relaying that she was talking to a non-Christian, and that non-Christian was appalled by the fact that her church was talking about those difficulties and helping navigate what was going on in their marriage. Like that, that seems like such an overreach of what a church should be, but you don't you don't understand. Like we care about the truth and the wisdom of God, and we love one another, and we want to see people grow in grace. And so the the civil government doesn't care if you're speaking kindly to your spouse. They don't care if you're growing in grace. They don't care if you're repenting. There's no grid within the judicial system for repentance or growth in Christ-likeness. But within the church, there is. And so we care truthfully about one another and what's going on in each other's lives. And when we see sin, we care about it. When we see a brother and sister at odds with one another, we care about it. It isn't a, well, that doesn't rise to a big enough issue to deal with. We, we care and we speak to one another honestly. And so the outside world should say, wow, they are, they're really, really truthful to one another. But they're also radically grace-filled to one another. Because the other operative principle, and they go together, is that we give a boundless grace to one another and the way that we deal with one another. And so that doesn't happen in the courts. The courts doesn't care about any of those things. And so the world that understands the secular judicial system should look at the way that Christians interact with one another and be surprised by both our truthfulness and accountability and also by our abundant grace and how we love and how we forgive one another, which leads into Paul's third point, that we should be patient with one another. And so he concludes, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Christians have two options when they've been offended. They can choose repentance or they can choose revenge. Christians don't do revenge. Very clearly, all the way through, God says, don't take revenge. He says, vengeance is mine. We are not seeking to get back at someone. And the reason we're not seeking to get back at someone is that God has not sought to get back with at us. If we deal with revenge, we want God to seek revenge for us, with us, we're in deep trouble. That God through Christ has allowed his vengeance to fall on Christ rather than us means that we now operate on the principles of repentance. Now, does that mean that we don't care about justice? Absolutely not. We can trust God that in the end, he is going to make sure that every wrong is righted. 
We can trust God when we're working in the church and we're trying to resolve disputes. And even as we talked about, if they are serious crimes that need to be handled by civil court, we can trust God and his justice working through any authority anywhere. But we don't do revenge with one another. We do repentance. We long for one another to repent. And I, I wonder if you've been offended by someone, if that's often what first comes up. It's, it's not often what first comes up with me. Somebody offends me, it's kind of like, you know, I, I want them to get theirs. That's my sin operating in my heart. It's not, I love that brother or sister in Christ. I hope that God leads them to repentance. It's no, I hope God vindicates me. I, I hope that God shows that I'm right and they're wrong. And I hope something bad happens to them. Not too bad, just a little bad to be in accord to what bad's happened to me. That, that's my sin talking. I, I don't first think, oh, in their sin against me, that, that's shown a blind spot in their life that they were able not, not just offend me, offend their God. And if that, that sin, if it continues, is going to rot out their heart. And I, I want to see my brother, I want to see my sister repent of their sins and realize how much God has loved them. And I, I want to see them grow in grace, most of all. And so I'm going to pursue this conflict pursue resolution. I'm going to speak truthfully to them because I want them to repent and I want to see them, I want to see grace grow and I want them to know how much Jesus loves them in the same ways that I know that Jesus loves me. That's, I, I, I often operate from the position of revenge rather than repentance. And we're operating from the point of revenge we get into funny things like what was going on in the church of Corinth. Now, how that operates even more specifically within repentance, if I could give you three ways that Christians think about repentance, the first way they think about it is forget and forgive. Right? Forgive and forget. Most Christians do forget and forgive. And so if I've been offended, they do this. I'm going to pretend it wasn't that bad, and I'm going to try and pretend it didn't happen and continue on in my life, and I'm going to smile at them without talking to them, or addressing what's going on inside of me. It is forget and kind of forgive that really isn't forgiveness. And so many Christians, rather than dealing with what's going on in their relationships, instead just kind of do the ostrich and put their head in the sand and pretend it never happened. Some Christians do forgive and forget. And so what they come and they say is they say, well, I'm going to forgive them and I'm gonna to talk to them about it and then I'm gonna forget that it ever happened. By the way, that is not what it means when the Lord Jesus Christ forgives and then God says that he will remember our sins no more. That is a metaphor for saying he will not remember our sins anymore in a court of justice. He will not remember our sins anymore in order to condemn us. But God doesn't see us and say, oh, who are you? He sees us and says, you are someone who has been clothed in the blood of Jesus. This is something that kind of sticks in my head a lot. But when we see the glorified body of Jesus, he still has nail marks in his hands. I would expect God to want to kind of erase those. You know, after his resurrection, to not have a gash in his side where he can say to doubting Thomas, you, you don't believe I'm resurrected? Here, put your fingers in my wound. You know, very kind of graphic and gory, but it means that he had this wound on his side. It, much less when we go to the throne room and John is struggling with language to talk about what Jesus looks like on the throne. He says, 
He is a lamb that looks slain but is still standing. So the way that lambs are slain is that their throats were cut. And so here is a standing lamb with just red down its front, standing in the throne room of God. You see, the, the payment for sin and our need of God's grace is still very visible in the new heavens and new earth because it is a testimony of what God has done for us. We're going to see next week is Paul's going to list a whole number of sins that are kind of really gross and really heinous. And he's going to say, such were some of you. Now you can imagine, you know, reading that letter there in the Corinth church and be like, oh yeah, that was so-and-so. That's what they were like, but God's forgiven them. So it's not forgive and forget. So, so what is it? It's forgive and know that you're forgiven. And so when we deal in terms of repentance, we want to see other people come to a deeper knowledge of not only that they're sinners like us, but a deeper knowledge of God's grace. And we enter into their life in conflict to say, brother, sister, I, I see this or you've offended me. Let's talk about this. And we want them to see that so that they can know that Christ loves them and forgives them, so that we can forgive them. That leads us to remember how much that we have been forgiven before God and how everybody else has been forgiven before God too. So that the fact that we have sinned and the fact, how many minutes am I into the sermon? 25 minutes um, into the sermon. All of us have sinned somehow in the last 25 minutes. And God's grace has been more than the sins that we've, that we've sinned. So that in the past 25 minutes, we have more reason to exalt the free grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and his abundant provision for us in Christ. And so when we forgive or are forgiven, we walk forward not with a record of sins that we beat ourselves up with, but with a record of God's grace in our lives, forgetting, forgiving every offense before him and before other people. We are all people who sin. We are accruing a resume of sin. But the beauty of the gospel is that God is accruing a greater resume of grace that beats our sin. And that is the wonder of being forgiven forgivers and existing within a community of faith that desires repentance and not revenge. We can love one another, and I expect you to sin. I hope you should know that. I expect that if we get to know one another, I'm going to see more of your sins. And by the way, you get to know me, you're going to know more of my sins. And if I haven't sinned against you yet... Like, wait till this afternoon. Like, it's, it's coming. At some point, I will sin against you too. And all of us will sin against one another. And we will have need to both forgive and be forgiven. And to be in a community of faith where we know each other's sins. But more than that, we know God's building grace is greater than that. Which is what marks the community of faith, the church of God is a place where we are more knowledgeable of how God is working in our lives and forgiving us for our sins. That is so much different than going to court. He's nasty. No, he's nasty. Who paid the judge more? You win. And so you can see Paul's frustration in the midst of this. The community of faith is supposed to look different, act different in our minor fusses and fights. 
our sins against one another. And Paul is driving them to remember that. Now, the, the tension you may be feeling right now is probably on one of two fronts. One, do you believe that Jesus has given you the church and the elders and deacons in the church to be your primarily, primary community for you to live in and to live out a gospel that is going to require you to both forgive and be forgiven? Do you think that Jesus has given the church to you for that reason? Or is this a place that we all come and pretend and we fake it and we do Sunday nice um, and we hope that we can get along with one another and just pretend that we're all nice Christian people who never forgive, who never need forgiveness? Or is this the place in your life where a community of grace is going to be on display and that Jesus gave the church to you for that reason? To work with one another in the language of the gospel of forgiving and being forgiven, of showing grace and celebrating God's work in all of our lives, of growing in sanctification and living lives together until we finally arrive to that place that God is preparing for us. The, the second tension is, has your heart been so changed by the gospel that you want to live on the terms of repentance rather than revenge? Jesus has some pretty crazy passages where he says that we forgive based on how much we think we've been forgiven. It even goes to some passages that say, if you are not able to forgive another, it shows you have not been forgiven by God. That when you receive forgiveness for your sins, it changes through the Holy Spirit how you live your life, and you live your life on the terms of grace which means you handle difficulty and conflict differently than the world does primarily because you've been forgiven. And so if these are our two tension points, I'm, I'm kind of not sure that I want to be a part of a church where someone might come up to me and say, you offended me. I kind of don't want to be in a church where it's expected that I might have to go to somebody else and say, you've offended me. I would, I would rather just pretend it didn't happen and look for a new church. I'm not quite sure I want to believe that Jesus created a community where grace is supposed to function practically in the way that we work out life with one another. And I'm, I'm not quite sure I want to give up the revenge piece. I, revenge feels good for a time. So what we look at when we come to Christ is that through Christ Jesus and our salvation and our union to him and salvation, we are also inexplicably united to one another. So when Jesus, and we talked about this last week in Covenant, so when Jesus connects to you, you are also connected to everyone else by faith. And the local church is the display of that. And so to a very real degree, you know, a, a Christian can't be a Christian without being a part of a local church. Does that mean that joining a church means that you're saved? No, that doesn't mean. But you know, when, when Augustine said the church is our mother, he wasn't talking about weird Roman Catholic stuff. He was saying, when you're united to Jesus, you're united to other Christians. And so can you trust that your salvation has also brought you within a Holy Spirit union with one another? See, our relationship with one another as our Christ Covenant family is different than you know, the people that I saw at a football game this past week 
um, the parents that I saw coaching a rec league, the people I saw in a coffee shop, our connection to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ is as strong and as secure as our connection to Jesus. Because in uniting us to him, united us to others. Secondly, our union to Christ gives us the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian, you are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. That's not a metaphor for I act in a spiritual way. It is not a metaphor at all. It is a tangible, real, indwelling of the third person of the Holy Spirit who has bound himself to you to complete the work of sanctification. If you are a Christian, you have God's Spirit within you, and it can never be lost, and that Spirit will have his way with you. The difference between the way that pagans looked at spirit and the way that Christians looked at spirit was the complete opposite. Pagans were trying to figure out, how can I control the spiritual world? And so they'd have spells and incantations and, you know, big cauldrons with frog legs and stews and all kinds of things and, you know, Ouija boards and little dolls we put pins in. And how can I control the spiritual world to get what I want? The way that our God works is the Holy Spirit controls us to get what he wants, which is his glory and our good. And so we don't come saying, how can I control the Holy Spirit? We come saying, Lord God, let your Holy Spirit control everything about me. I give complete submission. I don't want to control your spirit. I want your spirit to do exactly what your spirit does. And when that happens in believers, we're growing in wisdom and knowledge um, of the person of Christ and growing more in line with his will, which means Christians are uniquely equipped to understand the ways of God and to offer advice to one another and counsel and sometimes admonishment and sometimes rebuke and the way we talk to one another because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we're people who've been brought to understand that the economy of God functions on grace and truth and repentance because we were, we've received in Jesus grace and truth and we've been brought through that Holy Spirit to repentance. And so you can see, because of our union to Jesus, we act differently than the world does. And what was going on in Corinth, Paul was saying, wait, 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 this isn't who you are. Wait, you're, you're united to Jesus and to one another and filled with the Holy Spirit and being sanctified. Because that's true, these all you know, doctrinal statements, it affects the way we do relationship with one another. It, ex it affects the way we love one another. And so your, your obedience to this passage, what it looks like to go on is, are you growing in grace? First one, first of three. Are you growing in grace? Can you say that your knowledge of God's grace towards you in Christ is greater than it was a year ago? that it was six months ago, that it was six weeks ago, that it was six hours ago? Are you constantly striving to see that God is more gracious towards you than you have ever thought or believed? And do you believe that God's grace is fathomless? Is that a word? Fathomless? It has no bottom? Is infinite? That you will never reach the point of saying, I today, on September 30th, 2017, have probed the depths of God's grace for me, 
and I have accurately assessed just how gracious he is towards me, and I now can completely chart his full grace in my life, I am moving on from a study or growth in grace. It never happened. Grow in the grace of God. Secondly, are you growing in the wisdom of God? Are you giving yourself to a regular diet of studying God's word, alone and with other people? Are you growing in such a way that if someone brought you in and said, I'm having a conflict with so-and-so, and I need your help to come in and help us make sure that God's will is done in our conflict, help us lead to repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation, that God would be glorified, would you say, Yes, I'm willing to enter in on that because I've been studying God's word and I'm not perfect, I don't know it all, but I would love to help you figure out what God's word says about that situation. Are you studying God's word to serve one another in that way? Lastly, are you growing in community? Not just in, are you here this morning? Obviously you are. But are you a part of a smaller group of Christians where you are sharing your life and you're entering into their life for mutual encouragement and admonishment and upbuilding. It might be a few friendships where y'all have covenanted with one another. We are in, we're going to talk about Christ, and if we see one another wandering from the truth, we are going to lovingly call each other back. And maybe it's a part of a community group here um, at Christ's Covenant, and maybe some other group that you're a part of, but you are part of a community of Christians where you are intentionally trying to make it a community of faith and grace where you have asked them to do it. And by the way, it typically doesn't happen until someone has the guts to say that. To say, I want our relationship to be one where we are encouraging each other and calling out each other's sin. Are you okay with our friendship being that way? Are you okay with our group of friends being that way? Are you okay with our community group functioning um, that way? Are you pursuing that kind of community with one another? Because if not, you will believe the doctrine of your union with Christ and others, but you will not see the doctrine of your union with Christ and others. Our relationship with one another is how we see the grace of God in which we believe. So are you growing in grace? Are you growing in wisdom? Are you growing in Christian community? These are the ways that we make sure that we guard ourselves as a congregation against what the Apostle Paul describes here. And I, I don't think that I'm going to hear next week that, you know, y'all had a, somebody had a little tiff and they're in the circuit court, you know, talking about those kind of, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to be the expression of it here. But if we refuse to deal with conflict with one another, or just, it might not even be just dealing with conflict, live with one another in a way where we're encouraging in grace and calling out sin, it will be expressed in a community destroying way, some other way. You know, whether it's we call the you know, the church splant, you know, the, the, the church plant that's really a church split, that there was conflict between, you know, two people that grew to five people that grew to 20 people, and you have this, this break within a congregation, and some of them are like, fine, we're going to go start our new church. I mean, theoretically speaking, I've never really heard of that happening. Um, but that, those are the kinds of ways that these kind of things go. And so when we deal with one another in a community of grace, we expect one another is going to sin until we're done with this life or Jesus comes back. We're going to need to show each other grace, encourage each other when we see fruit, admonish and rebuke one another because we love one another and we want to see people really grow and not just pretend on Sundays and hope everything goes okay. Then we are going to pursue real community with one another. It's going to make it stronger, even though more uncomfortable. And grace is always uncomfortable. 
Grace always calls out. Grace is always uncomfortable. Always. Think about your relationship with God. You're not growing because you're like, well, God thinks highly of me. Nothing bad's happened. It's because God shows you, oh, I'm really prideful. I'm more prideful than I thought I was. Ah, it's still there. I still need God's grace. What a great God who's provided grace for my selfish sin of pride and self-absorption. It isn't a, well, this week I've tried to pride in my life and I've checked off three boxes after pride for the number of times I've repented. I am good to go. It's not this efficient widget production of repentance. It is when God lays on you the sorrow of sin, which is uncomfortable and hard and shows you things you didn't know were there or maybe you did know were there didn't know would come up in that way or ways you've sinned against someone else and sometimes maybe volitionally or didn't and you've got to walk through the discomfort of that before you can get to the celebration of the free grace of the lord god and god makes us uncomfortable in our sin because he loves us and so if you're a part of communities or friendships that don't have discomfort i question whether it's real community and the world has no idea what to do with conflict. Like, you know, if we have conflict, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, put some, like, between the lines comment on their Facebook wall and then unfriend them. You know, that's, you know, how does the world do conflict? We do conflict through grace. We do conflict because we love each other and we are for each other in God's work in our lives. And so it's going to look different in the way that we do things because of our union to Christ and what he's accomplished for us. And so we'll have a chance to see how that works out. Next week's going to be a lot of fun. Um, we look at the, the next passage. It's, it's such a huge passage, um, again, where Paul talks about that renovating work the Holy Spirit's done. And that's such for some of you. It, it's, it's a call to encourage you that when Paul looked out of the congregation, it was a group of people who used to be notable, unchristian sinners that God brought to repentance, changed their patterns of sin through repentance, and now they're a part of a congregation known to be repenting Christians, pursuing a different life than they had lived before because God had worked in their midst. And so that's a wonderful picture. We are the such for some of yous, all of us. By God's grace, plucked, changed, renewed, washed, renovated, reborn through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so um, you can read ahead and take a look at it if you want to. Um, but I hope you come next week and we'll dive into that passage together. I want to pray for us. Father, we are grateful for this, your word. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we conclude our worship this morning. And we pray in Christ.